Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. friends, and welcome back to the Dream Bigger podcast. I'm your host, Sif, and I'm the founder of Array and Icing Glitter. And on this podcast, you can expect conversations with thought leaders who inspire you to live your best life. So guys, I can bet good money that all of you listening have heard of Frank Body. You know that coffee scrub that literally everyone on the internet can't get enough of. I've tried it for myself, and I can tell you firsthand that my legs have never felt smoother. In case you haven't heard of Frank Body, it's a clean beauty brand with a range of body care and face care products, but it is best known for its infamous coffee scrub. It was founded by a group of friends in Australia, and today I'm chatting with one of its founders, Jess Hatsis Walker. This episode is packed with tips on how to build a successful brand. I knew I had to ask more business-related questions during this interview because Jess has arguably built one of the strongest brands in the beauty space. So let's go ahead and welcome her to the show. All right, so Jess, you and your co-founders created a coffee scrub, which basically everyone in the world knows about. So how did you even come up with this idea? I hope everyone in the world knows about it. I don't know if they do yet. Uh, The idea came about in quite a strange way. So it was maybe about eight years ago that the group of founders got together and we were discussing how we could move into a product-based business. We were all already operating service-based businesses like cafes and agencies. And we knew that we wanted to create something that we could sell online, something that followed our own ingredient philosophies and something that we could market to people who were really similar to ourselves in that they were millennial women. Uh, It was actually my co-founder, Steve, who came up with the idea for the original coffee scrub. He is the one that was operating a series of cafes. And I think it was his life surrounded by coffee that really kind of inspired the idea. So we got in the kitchen and mixed up a couple of recipes is all I can call them with things that we had on hand and that was how the original coffee scrub was born we got in the shower and it was probably the most phenomenal body scrub we'd ever experienced because at the time everything that was available was really those kind of gel micro beady formulas that you could get from the supermarket they weren't any really like gritty luxurious scrubs that you could use and we loved it and we thought well if we love it this much maybe other people will as well so that was how it came about that's amazing. So, but like, how, did you guys know already that coffee had all these benefits? Like what was, why coffee, you know? 
I think coffee was almost accidental at the start just because Steve built so much of his life and spent so much time around it. And then maybe it's a real Melbourneian thing. We are like the Seattle of Australia uh, in that we have such a strong coffee culture here. We Yeah, you guys, I see, I see pictures of your cafes and they're like stunning. <laughs> they are pretty next level. It's incredible. Um, we had basic assumptions around the benefits of coffee, but we did a lot of research in, you know, there's heaps of stuff available online and you can access some really great medical journals. And from what we could see, coffee was really fantastic. It's stimulating the circulatory system and lymphatic flow. So the benefits of that added in with the massage technique of applying coffee scrub mean it can help rid body, rid your body of toxins, um, improve circulation, which can help with things like cellulite. Not that we should worry, but because every single woman on the planet has cellulite and stretch marks. But if, if you're anything like me, sometimes it's nice to have them fade a little bit. Um, the actual manual exfoliation is really amazing at treating things like stretch marks. It's really good for body breakouts. Um, it's pH neutral, really high in antioxidants. So it has a lot of benefits that are great for your skin with, you know, with that added benefit of being natural and you can really trust and understand what you're putting on your body. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you guys come up with this idea. What's the process like? Like, do you guys have money to launch it? Was it bootstrapped? Like, I really want to know about the beginning stages of your business. We were completely bootstrapped. We had no money to launch. I think we launched with a total budget of less than $10,000, including our manufacturing. Wow. Yeah. Oh my gosh, that's really impressive. We we were fortunate in that we could do a lot of it ourselves. You know, um, my background is in branding. My co-founder, Alex, has a strong e-commerce understanding. So we didn't have to outsource too much. I think we brought on a designer who was a friend and helped us, you know, with really cheap mates rates, as we call them here in Australia. Um we made all the product by hand. We There was nothing glamorous about it. It was just like, let's find the cheapest, easiest way to get to market and see if this is actually viable rather than dumping tens or hundreds of thousands of, hundreds of, thousands of dollars into an unproven concept. I think the landscape has changed a lot though. And, you know, we live in the time of raising capital, which I don't necessarily think is the right thing to do. Um, and you know, people are trying to go to market with the most polished version of their brand and product, which I also don't necessarily think is the right thing to do for everybody. I think you can get to market with something that's a little bit more unrefined and learn from that. So for us, it was, yeah, real down and dirty, true startup, um, doing everything ourselves, working until two o'clock in the morning and making it happen. Honestly, like this feedback is something I hear from really successful entrepreneurs over and over again. It's almost like better to go to market with an imperfect product than wait for it to get perfect. Um, because when you go to market, like, you know, once you have proof of concept, you can always iterate based on consumer feedback. Whereas like, you know, if you're waiting for a product to be perfect, like you don't know when that's going to happen. That is exactly right. You have so much to learn from your customers and to think that you have all the answers which is the assumption if you believe you can go to market with a perfect product, then you're already making one of the biggest mistakes and that's an unwillingness to see that you may not know something. So, yeah, my advice to everyone is, you know, make it as good as you can within reason and then launch and learn and listen to feedback. Mm -hmm. So you guys launched Frank Body in what, was it 2014 or 2012? What, what was the exact year? It was 2013. We actually just turned seven. It was our birthday on the weekend. 
That's incredible. Wow. Well, happy birthday, belated. Um, but you know, I'm sure that even when you went to market back in 2013, the body care market, I'm sure was pretty saturated. So how did you go about standing out? Because I mean, one of the things that you guys have done really, really well is a refined brand voice. It was saturated in, in the sense that there were a lot of really big legacy players around. So you know, the same brands that have been dominating supermarket and drugstore aisles for years. The opportunity that we saw was that, you know, for a lot of those brands, the formulations are nothing great. They're packed with chemicals and parabens and pegs and synthetics and things that we don't use and that a lot of consumers now try to avoid. There wasn't a lot in the natural space that wasn't really, really greenwashed and it didn't, it didn't necessarily appeal to a brand-driven consumer. With my background in branding and particularly in copywriting, creating a voice that was really different was important. It's the same for my other co-founders, Bri and Erica, who I run an agency called Willow on Blake with, and we specialize in branding and tone of voice and social media strategy for brands. So we've been doing that for a really long time and we thought, well, if we want to launch on social, we actually have to come into the social space in a way that people are willing to accept because at the time it wasn't the done thing for brands to be playing on Instagram. You know, we're going back 2013, the platform had only been around for a couple of years and it was dominated by individuals using it to share content with their friends. Mm-hmm. We thought if we come on here as a brand, we need to participate in a way that is social. We don't want to talk to people, we want to talk with them. And that was where we saw a key point of difference for us versus, you know, the dubs and Neutrogenas of the world who were and still are very corporate in the way that they operate. Mm -hmm. So it was saturated to an extent, but we almost saw a new category emerging, which was startup consumer-driven body care, skincare, makeup, which now is completely saturated. Um, And so that was really the difference, I think, you see that happen across so many categories where, yes, it's dominated by a few key players, but are there ways that we can do things better that are actually putting the customer first? Often there are, and that's where I think a lot of great innovation happens. Mm-hmm. And I mean, just speaking, you know, going back to this like whole point you have about social media, like you guys have really, really done this so well. I mean, you've leveraged social media than uh, like better than most brands out there, I would say. So I know like we have a lot of listeners here who are young entrepreneurs, maybe who are just getting their business off the ground. So what are your tips for getting the word out about your product? Like, how did you guys do it? It's really interesting because I obviously launched in quite a different time. Um, The social landscape is very different now than it was seven, seven and a half years ago when we were trying to launch. The one thing that hasn't changed is that sending out product to 10 people and expecting that anything's going to happen this it's just not going to work we emailed hundreds if not thousands of influencers and bloggers trying to get them to cover the product um really we, oh i could if i went back through my emails it's just that was hours and hours and hours of my life um we assumed you know like a one in ten hit rate so if i emailed 10 people I'd probably end up with one person posting. So if I actually wanted any kind of scale or momentum, we had to be trying to get dozens and dozens and dozens of people trying to post, which required emailing hundreds and hundreds of them. 
Um, so that's the first tip, right? More is more. If you think you've done your job after emailing 10 people, you haven't. Just keep going um, and be relentless, but also be really considerate of the person on the other side. Um, I think trying to find a different voice is really difficult. Social is so saturated with brands now and the unfortunate thing that I see happen, we'll have clients come to us who are trying to replicate what somebody else is doing and it's never going to work. Customers are smart. People are savvy. They've seen it. If you've seen it, then they've probably seen it. So I think really dedicating the time to try and find that differentiator for your brand and your visuals and your voice shouldn't be overlooked. So they're my two tips. And what about like, you know, things like getting into traditional like traditional magazines, like traditional print, like were you, like did, did magazines just sort of take notice of you? Like what was that process like? One of our first hires was PR in-house. I think PR is incredibly mm. important. It has really changed as well. Obviously we've seen between us launching and now the shutdown of so many different publishing houses and titles that I grew up loving. I think it's really mixed media PR is what you should be looking for now. Don't expect that you're going to have something published and see an immediate spike in sales. So it just really doesn't work like that anymore. There are very, very few publications that hold that type of clout. So I think it's more about looking at it as a brand awareness tool and then ensuring that you are getting coverage in the channel where the customer who is most likely to shop your product actually sees. Uh, And that can be difficult because you know, a publicist might not have that knowledge, that detailed knowledge of what it takes to get the type of sell-through you need in-house. So yes, it does have benefit, but it can be a very costly exercise as well. Do you remember like your first, I guess, big coverage moment where you guys were just freaking out and so excited? So there was one publication that we got published in Um, which is an online publication called Broadsheet here in Australia. And, you know, we were so lucky. We were covered by Vogue and Harper's and all of those types of magazines. But this one was very personal and close to home because it covers the Melbourne cafe scene. And we thought this is fantastic because now we're in front of all of the coffee lovers, of which there are many, many, many in Melbourne and wider Australia. So, yeah, weirdly, that was one of the ones that sticks out in my mind from the early days. Oh, I love that. that. That's really sweet. <laughs> so, you know, another thing I've noticed that you guys do really, really well is your ability to inspire user-generated user content. Like, I see so many pictures, you know, just created by your customers who love your product and, uh, like, under your hashtag. And, you know, uh, how do you get that strategy to take off? Like, how did you inspire people to start doing that? We had been toying with the idea of user-generated content back in 2012 for a couple of our clients and seeing a lot of great success. This was back when people were using social in a much more raw and unfiltered way. I think trying to get user-generated content now is incredibly difficult. We really wanted to break the mold with the way that we talked about bathroom routines because there was this really polished unattainable vibe set by a lot of the major competitors you know you can picture the type of image I mean where a woman has her makeup done perfectly while she's gently splashing her face with water it was so (laughs) so unrealistic 
And we thought, well, this product is really messy. There's actually a huge amount of education we need to do to help people understand what a coffee scrub even is because that wasn't common vernacular back then. And we thought, well, let's show, not tell. It's been a philosophy of ours for a long time. So that was our legs and bodies right at the start. We would get in the shower and cover ourselves in the coffee scrub and take photos and encourage people to share their experience with the brand and try and normalize what had been taboo behavior the things that went on behind closed doors in your bathroom like let's talk about it we're all doing exactly the same thing in there so why do we have to pretend that it doesn't take all of this primping and pampering to look the way and feel the way we do and I think people really liked that the you know a refreshing take on your bathroom routine and pretend not pretending that it's all spa like because it's not like that at home um Giving and giving people a bit of a community and a brand to buy into was really important. Um, it got progressively harder for us to do that as the way that people used platforms like Instagram changed and they were really particular and their feeds became really, really curated. And then we started to see a bit of a shift to people using stories as a way to um, create user-generated content. And so we thought, okay, if this is the way it's going. We need to adapt. We can't just stick with the way we used to do things. And now we're looking at platforms like TikTok, which is so raw and uncurated as a great opportunity for us to inspire user-generated content again. So I think the key is to just not really get too attached to any particular way of doing things and be ready to evolve. Mm -hmm. And I think like you guys have stayed so nimble and like, I think it's really the key to your relevancy. Like your, your brand voice has always been really, really fun and playful and Uh, Like, I remember back when you guys launched, because um, this was like, you know, early days for me as well as like an influencer. And I remember like, you guys were one of the first brands, I think, to gift me product. And I was so excited. And like, it's been really cool to see you guys grow. Oh, thanks. That's so nice. Um, It's awesome for us as well. Like, I love seeing influencers that have been working really hard over many years to grow their brand and they learned with us like we all kind of grew up together in the social space and made mistakes and then really learned what it is that we want to do and what we want to achieve yeah for sure so you know like you guys now I mean I say that you guys created a coffee scrub that basically everyone in the world knows and honestly like I I do mean that because I think you'd be hard pressed to find someone who has never heard of Frank Body. And that's like an incredible achievement considering the brand is like seven years old, you know? So my question is, what was the tipping point for you? Like the moment where you where you really, really knew you guys were onto something and that this was going to be, you know, like a big thing. I don't know if we have ever really thought that we've made it because I think it's always dangerous too. I think if you think that you've made it, you can really rest on your laurels and you don't strive to be bigger and better and achieve greater things. So we we are always like, what's next? What are we going to do? We we really go, there's so many people that don't know about us. We haven't even looked at this region or this region and how do we grow there? That said, there have been moments where we've really pinched ourselves. Um, one of them was when we launched in Mecca in Australia, which is kind of like Sephora. It's like yeah, um, a big deal. Yeah. It's a huge deal. Like they, that was where I went and first bought my my first fancy product. I think it was um, Nars Laguna when I was a kid. Um, and so going in there and seeing our brand plastered all over the windows was one of the most 
incredible moments of my career. And then there's been so many like that. We've had that happen with retailers all over the world. We've had influencers and celebrities that we really admire organically talk about the product. And then we've had the most amazing customer feedback, you know, like a a little girl talking about how she wasn't scared to wear her school dress anymore because it really helped get rid of her eczema and psoriasis on her legs. That sort of stuff is like just as amazing as seeing your brand plastered on the windows of a retailer. So so many, so many different points. I can't pick just one. Yeah. I mean, those are, those are all incredible experiences. So if someone is, um, you know, they're looking to get their product into Mecca, like what was that process like for you? It was an interesting one for us because at the time Mecca did not stock any local brands. Their business practice was to bring exclusively international brands into Australia. Um, We, for us, it was about, well, what can we offer Mecca that they don't already have? Or what can we bring to the table other than just a product? And so for us, we were, I I guess, quite a, a leader in the digital and social media space at the time. And Mecca was still doing fantastically, but we thought, well, maybe we can share expertise here and we can learn from them about the retail space and they can learn from us about the digital and social space. And approaching it that way, where it's a reciprocal relationship, I think was one of the biggest drivers in the success of the relationship. Um, and, you know, we were, we were really fortunate. Our offices are around the corner from each other and the founder of Mecca, Joe, was happy to sit down with us and it began just as a conversation about learning rather than pitching our business and then organically over a period of six or 12 months turned into us actually being stocked with them. So I think for anyone who's looking at trying to, Um, partner with retailers yes you're going to be pitching to them there's an element of that but there's also an element of remembering that you're just dealing with a human and a workforce on the other side and thinking about how you can contribute to what they're doing as well is really important I love that I think it's a really really different way of thinking about it and like I think it's 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 a really nice perspective I think we're just not natural salespeople. we're not naturally pushy um we value relationships so much because it's how we had managed to grow our previous businesses um you know it's not necessarily the right way for everybody to approach it some people are just true you know true born salespeople, and they're fantastic at that um I suck at it though so this was the best way for me to approach it. <laughs> um so you know you guys launched your brand with one product, which was the original coffee scrub. Am I correct? Yes, that's correct. So at what point did you feel like you wanted to release a second product? Like when was the right moment for you? When we launched, we had no plans to launch a second product because we really just wanted to see if this actually worked. Um, But it was quite quickly after that, I'd say within maybe eight weeks of launching, we started discussing whether it would be right to create a second SKU. Uh, And the second product we launched with was, I can't remember now if it was our body balm or our coconut coffee scrub. Um, Perhaps we put them both in works at the same time and they launched within a couple of months of each other. Um, And we thought, again, let's with the body balm, it was really about testing whether there was appetite for something that wasn't a scrub. Could we turn this into a bit more of a multi-skew body care or skincare brand. Um, And that's really been the approach every time we've 
created new products and launched new categories. We were never set with anything having to continue. We put our best foot forward. We put great products out there and then we, we try and learn from them to inform the rest of our category development. So, I mean, you know, launching even one SKU is pretty, like, I, I, won't, I won't say it's like an easy thing to do, right? Because you have to manage inventory and all those costs. And you guys were a bootstrap brand. So like, how, like, how did you go about financing this whole thing, I guess? Uh, we were quite fortunate in that we would produce the product basically at the same time as it was ordered. So we weren't, we produced maybe a couple of hundred units up front and then it was almost being uh, created in real time as the orders came through, which is not always feasible for, you know, more complicated products. And now it's definitely not. This was really just for the first six months. Now we're producing stock six months in advance in, you know, tens of thousands of unit numbers. So <laughs> it's really different. It's a lot more expensive to operate as you grow um, because we hold, you know, we hold that as a liability on our balance sheet for months and months before we actually see any income in, come in from it. Um, yeah, it's the toughest part about launching. You know, the fewer units you order, the more expensive it is per unit. So I think just looking at all of the different ways that you can cut the pie and then there's an element of risk at some point you're going to have to take an educated guess as to what the right thing to do is um, and kind of put your money where your mouth is, which is really scary to do. Mm-hmm. And you guys, ha- have you ever gone around to raise money or is this still a bootstrapped business? We did. We raised um, about two years ago um, when we were really, really looking at expanding our retail footprint um, and for the reason that I just explained, actually. So because we were looking at working with some really large retailers in different regions of the world, we knew that we were going to have to spend so much um, capex in terms of producing fixtures and stock well in advance, you know, costs hundreds of thousands of dollars to do that Um, Mm -hmm. and to scale in a way that didn't jeopardize the business we decided to take on a minority investment and we were really focused on making sure they were a strategic partner um we didn't really want to just take money for the sake of money um it was about bringing on capital that could help us with our growth plans but then also experienced minds in our field that could really help us learn and improve business practices and see opportunities in places that we might not have seen them and we've been really fortunate that we have that I think it's pretty cool, like how how long you guys went before raising. Because I mean, going bootstrapped for that long is it's pretty incredible. We yeah, we were fortunate because we operated um, our DTC model for so many years. We didn't have those huge overheads that come with moving into retail. Um, we we first moved into brick and mortar retail in Australia, so it was a little bit easy for us to manage inventory and costs associated with that. And then as we opened retailers in the UK and the US and Canada and EU, it became much more complex. And the team grew. I'm really fortunate that it's really not my problem to have to manage inventory and all that sort of stuff. And God help the brand, it never became my problem. Um, you know, even the staffing costs associated with doing that, you know, we have, I think we're a team of close to 40 people now, but back in the day when it was just the founders, it was honestly the five of us doing everything Wow, that's 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 insane. So for, you know, young entrepreneurs who are like thinking of raising money, when would you say is the right time to do so? 
yesterday. Um, I think the longer you think about launching something, the more reasons you're going to come up with to not do it. Um, I, I think for anybody who's thinking about creating a brand or a business, you have to really ask yourself the hard questions about why you're doing it and make sure that there is more than money driving you. Um, and that I don't like to use the word passion because I think it's unrealistic to feel passionate about your work every single day, but that you feel at least challenged and excited by it. Um, so make sure that you feel that way and then stop thinking about it and just do it. Love that. So, I mean, you guys have been, I think really, really successful in the way that you guys have expanded your product offerings, because, you know, like we've all heard stories of brands expanding into product ranges that seemed really great on paper, but then they totally failed. So knowing all of this, how did you successfully expand from body care to face care? Because I mean, you guys do have face care offerings now as well. We do. um, And they're some of the products that I'm the most proud of. We wanted to keep our face offering really simple. So we initially launched with a three-step face routine and the scrub was the hero. We, And that's the philosophy that we've taken forward across all of our categories. We are a skincare brand and we create fantastic cleansers, fantastic moisturizers and masks. But at the core of every category is the scrub. Um, it's what we're known best for. It's what we believe that we do better than anybody in the market you know, for scalp, face, body, and lips. So we sort of, we centered in on that hero skew, the face scrub, and then built a routine around that. And I think if you can find your anchor or your real area of expertise as a, as a brand and then grow the rest of the category around that in a complementary way, it's the easiest way to build trust in your consumers and authority in a particular space. Love that. It's a great tip. And, you know, you are the founder of obviously a branding agency called Willow and Blake, and you guys have some seriously impressive clients under your belt. So if someone is thinking about launching a brand, what are three tips that you can give them from like a branding perspective? Oh, there are so many. Um, okay. The you can, you can do five. You don't have to stick to three. <laughs> My number one tip, even though I, I do believe you can go to market with um, rougher versions of your brand. I do think that people need to reframe the way they look at the costs of branding as an investment instead of an expense. Um, just because you can write does not mean you are a copywriter. And there is someone who is much more skilled and could sell your brand and your product in a way more effective way than you may be able to. Um, so I think trust in technical abilities of people who are experts in their field and invest in them the second tip would be to really do your best not to copy what somebody else is already doing it's it's really hard to build loyalty with your internal team and your customers if the basis of your brand is copying somebody else you need to give people something to believe in and that might seem really silly when you're talking about things like a body scrub, but at the core of our brand, there is this DNA that is so unique to Frank and it filters through everything we do. The way that we label our meeting rooms, the way that we interact with each other when we're working on projects, 
it's all driven by this DNA of the brand and it's really important to get that right at the start. You can't fake that later. Um, My third tip would be to try not to do all of this stuff yourself, which I guess is linked to number one, but when you can, bring people on in-house to manage things like social media for you because it's really easy as the founder of a brand to think that you are going to be able to do that stuff, but you'll be so busy. Um, And those kind of things fall by the wayside. You don't do community management effectively. And they are really key things to being able to build a loyal and engaged customer base. So that's my three tips. Amazing. Amazing. Those are, those are all super, super valuable, super interesting. Um, And I mean, last question before we wrap, tell everyone where they can find you. Oh, you can find me in so many places. Um, you can find me, I'm Jess underscore Hatsis, I believe, on Instagram. And you can find Willow and Blake on Instagram as well. And then, of course, at Frank underscore Bod. Amazing. Thank you so much for being here, Jess. Thank you so much for having me. Great questions. It was lovely to chat. Thank you.